This interview has us moving out of our wheelhouse a bit. We've been listening to people who inhabit some sort of space in the Muslim or Muslim-majority world. Our geographies have been loose, but they're about to get looser. We're talking to people who work in the public humanity space, and that's been a part of what we've been focusing on. So I think this is okay. <laughs> so how do we make his history accessible? And why is it not simply a case of making more lecture videos available online, more archives available online? My core belief is that our communities deserve creative, beautiful work, which requires thought and also facilitation of different spaces. Labor has also been at the heart of this series. How do we honor and finance the labor of those within our public humanities, public scholarship community? Welcome to Knowledge and Its Producers, a limited series from the Maidan produced by me and Mansour. In each episode, we'll be talking to people who are at the forefront of knowledge production, typically away from the traditional educational power structures. We'll be talking to people who curate, who edit, who run research centers, who write, and more. My field is Islamic studies, and we'll be talking to people who fit into the study of Islam and the Muslim-majority world, but that doesn't necessarily mean they'll be Muslim themselves or Arab or Turkish. It just means we don't have perfect terms for describing this big intersecting world. Not yet. The goal is to get a wide variety of people talking about different ways of accessing history, ideas, and more, to uplift the people we're interviewing, and to inspire you. Today, we'll be talking to the founders and editors of Contingent Magazine, Mark Reyes and Aaron Bartram. Contingent aims at making history accessible to all while supporting academics who don't have job security. I hope you enjoy talking to them as much as I did. There's a lot of laughter in this interview. Note, Dole Black is also a co-founder of Contingent Magazine, but he wasn't available for this interview. And a heads up, we will be using some acronyms in this episode, and I didn't catch them while we were recording. The AHA is the American Historical Association, uh, and you don't need to remember it specifically, but when this acronym comes up, just remember that the AHA or other professional associations that turn up as acronyms throw yearly conferences that kind of gather everyone in their field. This is a particularly pertinent question to the age we find ourselves living in, but what are you guys snacking on these days? What are your favorite snacks? Mark, you want to take this one first? Sure, sure. I I've become, uh, I guess maybe a, a daily. Uh, uh, hold on. Uh, um, I I would say I'm snacking on the Target version of peanut butter crackers and granola bars. Mm. So it's like they're it's like they're in house. One of they're called Market Pantry. So pretty much every time I come into my the back room that that is kind of our home office. I usually bring a peanut butter crackers and a granola bar with me, even if I don't eat them both. I just, it's become kind of like just anytime I go to work, I have to bring coffee or tea or something to snack on. Even like Aaron, you know, as we were kind of joking earlier, even if it's not, even if I shouldn't eat that every single time, it is something, <laughs> I need something crunchy, uh, at least nearby. <laughs> it's your ritual. Yeah, yeah. Aaron, what about you? Um. I am well I'm I'm back at work and I work in a historic house museum so I, I can't keep any food where I am so I have to try to be really strategic and I've been trying to actually snack like have better snacks during the day carving all the time um but since it's midsummer I I tend to go pick blueberries locally and I'll go two or three times a week in the evening and just sort of pick what I have so I'll usually bring 
you know, a pint of blueberries to work, um, which is why I was just making, I've moved on from the just purely banana bread stage. Um, and I am enjoying uh, some banana blueberry oatmeal muffins that I made uh, this past week. So they're, Ooh. yeah, um, they're really nice. And they had uh, those, those smaller um, mangoes that start with an A that I can't remember. And they had a, those on super sale at the grocery store the other day. And I've just been sort of snacking. I've been like limiting myself to one a day because they're wonderful. Uh, trying to stretch them out, but yeah, it's summer and it's like the one time New England has fruit other than apples, so I'm trying to enjoy it. <laughs> yep. So, but it'll be it'll be apple season soon, and I'm I'm excited. Yeah. Uh, do you guys go apple picking at all? I I I only went. I went a couple times when I first got to Connecticut because it, it did feel like it was something that was required by law. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or at least like, yeah. Apple pick. Yeah. I think apple picking is never a thing I did growing up. Like we had, there were lots of orchards and we would drive, you know, to get the exact Northern spies or Romes or whatever my dad or grandfather wanted for pies you know, we'd, we'd drive a ways to get them. We never went and picked them on our own. We would pick berries and stuff like this. Uh, I, I, we're, I think we're going to pick apples this fall, you know, for the kind of bunker mentality we're all in. But um, we would usually just go to the, to the orchard and cider mill and like get a couple of, pe of pecks of the kind that we wanted. Um, the idea of going and picking those, like, that seems like a, quite a production compared to blueberry picking. Yeah, usually like around September, you'll just find, and not just grocery stores, but you know, side of the road stuff. There's you, you just can't go wrong with apple pie, barrels of you know baskets of apples and apple cider. It's kind of, kind of everywhere. And I think the first year, I was kind of like, oh, that's that's cool, I guess. And then after a while, it kind of dropped off. But now I really do like this summer has been like hitting me hard. Just like all the things I miss about. Connecticut and New England in general, like, you know, it's, it's a very rural state. And so there are a lot of dairies and you can kind of go to any town and find, you know, the town ice cream parlor or also get milk. So it's kind of, you know, just, you can kind of keep exploring the state and then you just see, you know, this is an obviously pre COVID terms, but you would find, you know, 20, 30, 50 people outside of one building and you'd wonder, oh, what's that? And then you'd find out people are just in line to get ice cream or get milk. And then you could just keep hitting town after town. And it was always kind of great stuff. It's, it was, you know, I, I being from the Midwest, I, I feel like, yeah, we get a lot of credit for dairy here, but it's nothing like New England. Yeah. And a lot of people have, have been doing the, um, we've sort of increased local milk delivery and stuff like that. Um so I think a lot of people have been taking advantage of that during uh, during the pandemic. Um, but it's we're just about to get to, you know, to apple season. And I remember, Mark, a colleague of ours, Casey, who was from Louisiana originally, sort oh, of yeah. recounting that when she had first come, she'd gone to school in upstate New York and then been in Connecticut, saying sort of to people like, I don't get, why does it matter? Like, it's just apples. Like, what's the difference between <laughs> apples? And of course, you know, it is. In, in addition to just sort of like 
knowing the difference between eating apples and baking apples and all this kind of stuff. But like even within the eating apple, everybody has a very specific. Yeah. So when people say, oh, it's apple season, I'm like, this is garbage. It's just Paula Reds. This is early. We have to <laughs> we have to wait for the good stuff. So <laughs> this sounds like a contingent article waiting to be produced about apples and the history of apple picking. So let's pivot from that, take a hard pivot. And let's go to, um, I mean, Contingent is something that I've been familiar with since you guys started fundraising for the project. Um, but can you tell our listeners in a sentence, please, what Contingent is? I worked on a sentence before to try to get it into one. <laughs> so this isn't going to be complete, Mark, but you can you can edit as necessary. Uh, it is a a digital nonprofit magazine of history that publishes and pays non-tenure track historians. Mark? I was, I too was working on a, a single sentence, practicing it. And I, I, my single sentence is contingent magazine is an online history magazine that's interested in all types of history by all types of historians and also writing about the discipline and the profession. Yep. That's, yeah. that's, that's how I would, that's how I perceive contingent. I mean, you guys have all of these great pieces that follow researchers, follow different types of researchers. And then also, I mean, Mark, you have that wonderful mailbag where you break down sort of, um, where you break down. Oh, or, why, why, you, why, did, yeah. Why people, why, why historians still have to, to actually go to archives and, and yes. deal with physical sources. Yeah. Yeah, I almost forgot about that, even though you sent it to me while I was writing for you guys. Um, and I think about just also contingent, if I was put it in a word, it's it's just creativity. It's this like brilliant platform for repackaging history. I mean, I was really inspired very early on by one of your field trips that was a cartoon. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, that first summer. So um, let's go all the way back and tell me how contingent began. Uh, well, I'll start because... Um, of the three of us, Mark, Mark was, was sort of the, the last to join. Although it all happened in a very yeah. in a very uh, short order. Um, so I had obviously in the winter, early spring—I don't remember when it was technically—of 2018, sort of rather publicly left academia in a way that many people sort of heard about, and um, and so I had sort of found myself in a place with no real career future, but with a bunch of people wanting to talk to me about contingent labor. And then Bill in June of that year, so June of 2018, messaged me. He and I had known each other online and we'd met once at a conference the year before uh, where he delivered a paper that made me and everyone in the room cry. It was so good. Um, <laughs> But he messaged me like, I have a really weird idea, and I think you might be the person who who I could work on it with. And and so he sort of vaguely pitched this, like, what if we, what if instead of blogs and, and writing stuff for the Washington Post made by history section that you, where you don't get paid, what if we sort of tried to make a magazine for contingent writers where they got paid? So So the pay was kind of the central part from the beginning. And I think that shaped the everything that grew out 
uh, from that point. So we kind of sketched out a bunch of ideas and then we sort of reached out to a, a handful of people um, who we knew, uh, grad students, contingent scholars, some early tenure track scholars, and, and just sort of said, we're thinking about this, what are your ideas? And people had all sorts of ideas. And Mark said, I would like to do this with you, basically. I, yeah, I, I remember how I came into the story was I had, I had DM'd Erin one day in, I think, July of 2018, because I, I wanted her advice about publishing op-eds or, or writing for more mainstream publications. Like our, our, Aaron was mentioning our, our colleague, Bill Black, you know, Bill's written stuff for the, the week and box. And you, you see this a lot with grad students getting pieces published in like made by history or, or uh, the Atlantic. And so I was curious about, you know, what would, what would it be like to actually pitch? Because again, this isn't something that comes up in, in graduate school or any of your, you know, intro to methodology courses. Like, how do you, how do you pitch a non-journal? How do you, how do you develop something that, you know, a more general audience would be interested in? But I knew Erin had had that experience. So I, I messaged her and she wrote back very quickly with the pros and cons of what it's like to, to publish. And I remember at the end, she said, she said, Hey, the, you know, this guy, Bill Black, I don't know if you know him, but we've been talking about this project and she sent me this Google doc, which, uh, was called untitled project brain. Oh, and, uh, and she's like, you know, uh, could you look this over sometime? Give your thoughts on this. And I was actually in July of 2018, I was about to leave Connecticut, move back to Missouri, where I'm talking to you from for a couple months and then head off to India uh, for, uh, for research. And so I was like, you know what, I'll, I'll give this a look before I leave Connecticut and I'll put some comments in. But I remember reading through it and just thinking like, oh, this is a lot of really cool ideas. This would be really amazing. And I know it was it was talked about as a magazine, but even then it wasn't like, you know, like a magazine to me is still something like you, that you pick up, mm -hmm. you leaf through, it, you know, it has like this physical texture. But I knew, you know, whatever shape this was going to be, whether it's a website, magazine, I, I just felt like this is one of those, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to be like, you know, Pete Best from the Beatles. I didn't want to miss out <laughs> on you know, I didn't, I didn't want to be Pete Best by anything. So... I was like, I don't know what this might be, but I, I, this sounds so cool. Like I'd be a fool to not be involved, you know, for as long as I possibly can. Cause I kept thinking like, oh, you know, I might, you know, I'm going to go off to India. We'll see what happens. I'll, I'll help here and there. But it's just been, it's been incredible just seeing the last two years of doing this and seeing all the different people that the site touches and connects with. And, and so honestly, it's just a, it's all one big cool surprise. Yeah, and I think one thing, you know, you asked me about, I remember this now, you asked me about pitching. And to be quite honest, yeah. I had, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, you know, I had talked to Bill about how to pitch because, uh, you know, I was confronted upon leaving academia with sort of a half-finished manuscript. And, you know, I two weeks after I publicly said I was leaving, like I got an acceptance for a journal article that had been pending for a very long time, you know, like first round minimal revisions. And it was, and it was great, but kind of a day late and a dollar short. 
but I was sort of grappling with the fact, um, and I remember having this reinforced for me at, at the Shear conference that summer that I went to um, as a as a bit of a pariah, um, where it was very clear that there was not that that magazines and newspapers and trade presses in general were not particularly interested in the kind of history that I wrote. Um, and this, this sort of general, like, well, you can still publish it with a university press and, and I wasn't going to do that. Like, it, I don't know why people sort of think like, oh, you can still publish a book. Like publishing an academic monograph is miserable. Like it's actually terrible and costs a lot of your time and money. And why would I do it? Like, it's not worth it to me. It wasn't worth it to do that. But, but it, I was kind of confronted by the fact that there was nothing, there's nothing else I could do. Um, because it wasn't about the right things. And I had sort of always been, that always been kind of hard to, to take. And we wonder, you know, how do people get into history and, and stuff? Like I didn't get into history till quite late in my life because the kind of stuff I was interested in wasn't presented as valuable. So I, in some ways I ended up talking to Bill early on about pitching because I, I hadn't quite grokked to the, fact that it wasn't necessarily that I was pitching wrong, but that it was that the content that I was going to pitch was wrong. Um, and there's also the fact that like, uh, you'll notice, you know, there's there are these famous pieces of Quitlet from me and Rebecca Schumann and all these other pieces. Those, those aren't pieces that get published and go viral because they get pitched and accepted. They only get republished in big outlets because they were they went viral on their own. So like I would never have pitched my piece of Quitlet and gotten it accepted. Um, so that there was just certain kinds of writing and certain conversations about the discipline and labor that were not, you weren't gonna, you weren't gonna get them accepted. And I know, I mean, cause we've tried over and over and over again, and we still get that dude in the wall street journal who says professors make a hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, right. So there was this idea that we could kind of have something that talked about that, uh, you know, we could we could feature the kind of content that we thought really did have an audience, but maybe that audience hadn't had been told that history wasn't for them. Um, we could support these contingent scholars who had really great work and know where to publish it anymore. Um, and then we could also kind of talk about the doing of history, not history as a fact, but a process. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of where our, um, where our sort of three, uh, three sentence kind of motto came from. And to be quite honest, like I wrote those three sentences the night before I went to Chicago for AHA before we premiered and they only, they only work because we had spent forever workshopping the idea. And that's, we brought on Emily Esten in that yeah. early fall, probably late summer, early fall, to, I think October, yeah. To be our kind of web designer and an all-around tech person and just digital humanist in general. Um, so that was kind of, once we had her on board, we could really start framing out like that this would be a real thing and, and what it would look like and how it would work. And it, it was funny, like Emily is a good example, hiring Emily and bringing her on is a good example of sort of the three of us having the same thought at the same time mm -hmm. because I had, I, I knew Emily via Twitter. And then I, I wanted to pitch a panel to OAH in 2018. And I, 
she agreed to be on it. And then she graduated with her MA and she was looking for work. And she just tweeted one day in the fall of 2018 as like, Hey, I'm looking for website design work. And I think all three of us had the same idea that like, we should, we should hire her. We should bring her on board. And I remember saying like, Oh, I, I know Emily. I was just on a panel with her and she's, she was game to do it. And once she came on, it was, you know, this is how we build this website. This is what we have to do. These are the plugins we should consider investing in. Like it's, you know, we, but we all had the same idea. Yeah. It was kind of nice. Yeah. And I think it's sort of why a thing that was important to us from the start, because I think the other person that we hired early on was, was Hillary yeah. to do the graphic design. And it had been really important for us from the start that if we said people get paid for their work, that means people get paid for their work, even if they're doing, especially if they're doing web design yeah. and graphic design. Um, and, and Mark actually is the one who connected us with Hillary, who, who created yeah. our, our amazing logo. She, she was a former student of mine. And I, I remember I'd reached out to a couple of others to see who they would suggest. And they both suggested her. And I remember that, that sort of, that I think it was like, instead of we, at that time we were, always using Skype. And I remember Hillary wanted to use Google Hangout. I remember the three of us or the four of us, you know, she was asking questions that we hadn't really, we hadn't considered deeply, but it was, it helped us flesh out both the, the look of the site, but also the, the scope of the site. And at one point we were doing stuff when I was in India. So we were kind of operating on, you know, a couple of different continents and time zones and uh, times of the day. But, you know, this, that's, Kind of, if you can do it that way, do it. Yeah. It's interesting seeing how, well, A, how your team came together very organically, um, but also, and through networks, of course, but also everything you're saying is now manifested in the features and the regular features that you run on the site. So of course, as Aaron was speaking about sort of wanting to highlight how history is done, you have that wonderful series that I love, um, How I Do History, mm -hmm. which features not only historians, but also people who are archivists, who are digital humanists, and it's 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 brilliant. Um, so I am curious how you all sat down together as a team to think through what features you wanted to run and how to define them, how to title them. We have never all been in the same room. Yeah, together. that's true. Yeah. Um, I mean, Mark and I were at grad school together, but not even buried together. I'm yeah. considerably older than, Aaron's, than Mark. Aaron's uh, last three semesters were my first three semesters. That's yeah. the way, yeah. Um, so we, so it was, it was always, it's, we've, we've always worked in a virtual mm -hmm. space. So this is why the sort of switch to doing everything digitally contingent is the only part of my life that hasn't been disrupted <laughs> in any way. That's true. Um, Okay, but what I what I meant was sort of the collaborative process yeah. of like brainstorming together because it seems like you all have these conversations via Twitter or text or email and then they coagulate into ideas. Yeah, our DM history is a, an archive in yeah. itself uh, <laughs> of of pan of panic. Um, I, I think we, one thing we did at the start was, I mean, th this I think was really important for us. We essentially had to write a business plan. Mm -hmm. um, 
And that was that kind of prospectus was what we circulated to a lot of people. And one of the first things we had to do was figure out what sort of forms we wanted to have. And at the start, I, you know, what we really had was were were feature shorts, field trip, mailbag, and reviews. Um, and we all the other stuff that we've kind of innovated has come since then. Um, but we we read about how much people will read, and mm-hmm. we we read about average pay per word and we, you know, we talked to editors of other magazines um, and we calculated in, okay, well, but how do we factor in the, the actual cost of doing this research? You know, that this isn't just let me sit in my room and think about something. This is, this involves labor and, and travel. And how do we, how do we recognize that? Um, you know, so, so outlining those forms was important at the start, if only because we wanted to be able to make very clear to people, because pitching is so hard, mm-hmm. and especially the money part is so awkward. Like, I didn't want anybody to have to worry about that. I wanted them to know what they were pitching and how much they could expect, because I actually don't like to, oh, just negotiate more, like, because I know who's at a disadvantage yeah. there. And I just I just wanted it to for everyone to be able to know what they were going to get if they pitched us. Yeah, I think I appreciate it the most only because you're exactly right. People are certain types of people are disadvantaged with this because they don't feel like they should ask. And then there's also and I think, Aaron, you've spoken about this before, the fact that it's so drilled into our heads that like, you know, when you produce history, it's for the public and that maybe you shouldn't Mm -hmm. be paid and then also there's this like, well, tenured scholars don't get paid for for the writing for the Washington Post. It's sort of an honor. And it's it's this totally skewed sense of labor that is the same sort of logic that applies to the adjunctification of the profession. And that's what I really admire about contingent. I mean, you put it in, I mean, oftentimes people ask me, what does contingent mean? And I'm like, well, it refers, it's a direct reference to the profession and the problems with it. Um, But it's also punchy. And I think I appreciate that about how you pick the title. I wish I could even remember how that talking to Hillary. Do you remember? Well, I remember we came up with it by October, but I think contingent was your suggestion. I think we had some other ideas, but honestly, I think once we heard that, that was it like that any, any like possible titles, you know, just kind of, kind of pale in comparison to that. But I remember you, <laughs> I think that was that was your call, but I I was looking through old emails, and by October, all of the emails go from, you know, untitled brainstorm to possible <laughs> website to contingent. It's been kind of, it's been that since. So, yeah, and and it was kind of to be able to talk about that to Hillary, and then to have you know she sent us several different um, sets of kind of design packages, yeah. and and I remember opening them, and when I kind of scrolled down and I saw the image that that became our logo like I remember tearing up because being able to see the idea of the magazine expressed visually like that was just it was it was overwhelming and then to be able to like she was the first check we cut basically she was the first person we we paid and we did have to kind of make a decision at a certain point like we were going to have to pay going to have to pay Emily for that work. We were going to have to pay Hillary for that work. It's a lot of money to start a nonprofit. Like we had to incorporate and we had to become a public charity and and all these different fees. And, you know, at that point we were a grad student 
of a VAP and and an, an unemployed person who was who was just finishing teaching one adjunct class and had no no future. And we sort of had to decide like, are we going to do this? And then I got accepted on a late breaking panel at the 2019 AHA. Right. Uh, in and I think November, uh, a panel with Bill Cosson, who's also now on our board, and um, and once I knew I was going to be in Chicago for AHA, it was kind of like, well, that let's premiere it then, and it, so then it was kind of a mad dash, including getting all of our swag printed up <laughs> in the week between Chris between Christmas and New Year's, which was the stupidest thing. Um, <laughs> Having, you know, hoping that hoping that a package of stickers arrived at my house before I had to leave to go to <laughs> Chicago next morning. Uh, and then the morning I got to AHA, basically we set it to to launch, to premiere, like when I landed in, in Chicago. And we had kept it very quiet. I mean, yeah. some people knew it was coming, but I can't say more than more than 20 people. And some of those were my parents, who I'm not sure really knew what what was yeah. going on. Um, so it was it was like this: we're gonna we're gonna have to take a leap. And then when people actually donated, I remember we all kind of simultaneously had this panic, like twenty five hundred dollars raised in. Oh God, we're gonna have to do this now. <laughs> this people, might happen. People get you know because because yeah. we, we'd had to we'd had to set up a bank account and we'd had to set up Stripe and PayPal and find a donor management system and mm -hmm. all of this infrastructure yeah. work. And then it was like, Oh no, people, people want us to do it. Crap. <laughs> now we have to. Um, it's funny. Me and Mark were just talking about this. We were talking about um, sort of the adrenaline that comes with it and then like refreshing your donor box yeah. page and, and, and sending messages to the graduate students. I mean, I don't know if you guys did this. I was, when I fundraised for a project, I began, I wanted all the faculty to donate, of course, and not the grad students who have very little money. And I spent a lot of our fundraising period DMing my friends who are graduate students who were sending money being like, you're not supposed to donate. <laughs> um, yeah. Same. same. I, I remember, you know, you ask people for money. And then as soon as I saw people giving i was like no you're an adjunct i know you can't afford that don't give us money like i felt bad because yeah. i knew yeah. what it was to those people most of our donors are not tenure track faculty most of our donors are adjuncts and grad students and yep yeah friends and archivists um yeah. what was i gonna say and then also um i just have to say aaron this might not actually go in the interview um because I've said this to Mark before multiple times, and I've said this on Twitter multiple times, your stickers are gorgeous. My, I got a set after I, um, when Mark sent me my check for the piece I ran with you guys, and my mother tried to, because they came to my mom's mm -hmm. address, because I wasn't in the States, my mom tried to take them, and the check, <laughs> but, but she made more of a show of taking the stickers and putting them in her room, um, because she could visualize that. They're beautiful. I, that's, I, that's why I love it when people still when they want a physical check because that gives me an excuse to put the cards and stickers in there. I love being able to, to send those. And, and w when you guys, when you guys send your stickers out, I, I've never been a stickers on the laptop person, but I think I, I, I've started to see them. I've become more envious when I see laptops that are, you know, supporting, supporting something. So if, if you guys, when you guys get stickers, if you send them our way, uh, yours, yeah. Yours will be the first I 
I'm going to break that rule for uh, for you guys. I'll put that on there proudly. Well, I have that was that was the really thrilling thing because you know I I sort of got off the plane armed with uh you know a bunch of <laughs> bunch of random crap in a bag like here's here's uh business cards and here's stickers and so I started you know at that point just kind of giving them out to people and by the end of AHA to see them on people's laptops yeah um was didn't, was amazing didn't TSA stop you for that package or something. Yes, they did. Yeah. Yes, they did. Yeah. Uh, it got inspected at Bradley, where, you know, <laughs> no. Bradley is the most low-key, yeah. nicest airport to fly out of. Nothing happened to um, Bradley. <laughs> no, not at all. And I think it also snowed that morning mm-hmm. on the way to the airport. It was it was a lot of things where I was like, we were, because you, I don't know if you were, Mark, were you in India then or were you I was, in the state? I was in India by then, because I remember because we had a meeting on new year's eve that was like it was like three hours away from midnight but it was it was like morning for you guys so it was kind of like oh yeah 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 Yeah. (laughs) and it was good because the like the lead up to it frankly being stretched out over time i think it was 11 and a half hours between me and mark and so 12 and a half including bill it meant that basically we had almost complete 24-hour coverage for all the stuff that had to get done in those last few days like i remember dming being like i you know because i had a flight at six in the morning or whatever being like all right it's 8 30 i'm gonna go to bed can you do this before i get up in the morning you know and and then off off we went so it kind of worked to our advantage sometime um and we had to be to talk about the forums a little more like we had we had our our first set of uh pieces kind of lined up once we knew we would be able to do it we had some ideas about who what kinds of things we wanted to feature so so we didn't that the first kind of month of pieces wasn't they weren't pitched they were solicited um yeah so that was kind of how we because we wanted those first set of pieces to really kind of frame out the kind of work we wanted to do so tell me more about the distribution of labor so how who does what and how I know that labor is really important to you guys. And I want to hear more about the sort of the checks and balances you use so that everyone is being appreciated. I think we have a sense of it. I just want to hear more about it. Sure. Uh, well, we are technically uh, one thing that's been important for us to keep in mind. And I think um, I've, we, we've all done some kind of consulting for, for other people to help work them through this, that sort of contingent the organization, the nonprofit organization, is separate from contingent the magazine. One exists to put the other out. Um, and so the three of us are the editorial board of the magazine, but we're also on the on the actual board of the organization. So mm-hmm. I don't really know why we picked well I know why we I know why Marcus Treasurer, because he has a background in accounting. And yeah. that's so he became that I became president and Bill became vice president secretary. That doesn't matter much other than, um, I mean, it matters a lot for Mark. It matters less, I think, for for me and Bill. Mm -hmm. But those sort of mapped on to some of the things that we had to to take care of, I would say. Does that make sense, Mark? Yeah, yeah. Like, um, I think I, with Mark, sometimes when necessary, tend to take care of, for the organization, the um i don't even know what you'd call it like it's incorporated at my address because i knew i was going to live here and the other two were a little more mobile um 
sort of, I take care of a lot more of the organizational, like business stuff, like making sure we stay in compliance. I kind of took the lead on our 501c3 application, right. um, stuff like that. Bill sort of ended up defaulting to a little more of the, um, like he gets contracts out and he kind of refined that language and he keeps track of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, Mark kind of has his hands full with the, with sort of our general accounting, though each of us is sort of responsible for paying the, the people we edit. Although while you were in India, we sort of, Bill and I switched off on that. Right. Um, and so that's kind of right. separate from the editorial labor. Mark, you may have some sort of thoughts on, I think it ebbs and flows and is a little more organic. Yeah, right? it, it, yeah it's never been... I, I would say, you know, I wouldn't say it's all, I think in the beginning, I think we, after like our first month where we, we loaded up a, a number of pieces, I think for a while there, our default was to do four, four pieces a month. And it was kind of one piece per person. And then if, you know, maybe somebody would grab the fourth piece or we could work on it together. Like there was a piece, the our first summer that Bill and I, there's a couple of pieces I think Bill and I worked on or you know, if something comes up, we could say like, "Hey, Aaron, can you look this over?" Um, but I think, I think the length, the length of the piece, sort of yeah. editing. You know, I edited Eddie's dinosaur piece, which was very long and took a yeah. lot of editorial work. <laughs> but I also did Aaron's comic, which required a different kind of thing. So those two sort of evened out. So like. No one is going to take, I mean, now we're sometimes dumb at it. Like I found myself in, I think May or June, maybe like somehow I had, we'd gotten ourselves backed up and I, I, had, I edited all of the pieces for the month, which hadn't originally all supposed to been coming out in that month. Um, and then like July, I had kind of an easier month uh, Yeah, I, I, because of that. Yeah. Some months are, are, you know, the months just tend to be different on, what we have like in the queue and what you know if something if something sounds better to come out now than later like that can you know work can be done to get a piece out a little bit earlier um, but it just I mean sometimes you just gravitate towards stuff that you find interesting or you want to learn a little bit more about and and you and at least for me I you know I kind of get uh, protective or I I get you know very sentimental about the field trips. Yeah. Because it was something that, you know, we get a, a lot of pitches for features. Everybody wants to pitch a feature. Um, mm -hmm. We get then a good amount of shorts, not as many reviews, but I think this year we, for the beginning of the year, we didn't have any for field trips. And those can be, you know, our, our joking phrase for those are, you know, it's, it's Mr. Rogers goes to the crayon factory, but for historians. So like, where, where do all the interesting places historians go to? Well, they, you know, they go to, Libraries go to archives. They go to you know battlefields. People, you know, historians go all sorts of interesting places, and so I I kind of gravitate towards those in shorts. Um, uh, you know. Yeah, you really. Mark is kind of the editor for for the How I Do History series. Yeah. Um, he kind of takes the lead on on that. Um, and and I think when we do special things, like Bill kind of took the lead on the Forrest Gump series we did right. last year. Um, I think kind of Mark and I took a little more of the lead on the Star Wars series. So some sometimes it's just, you know, and I will I will tend to pick pieces that are 
that intersect with my own research interests, in part because I want to, I would rather have some grounding in the literature. Like these are not, there's no, there's no full peer review here. We're not claiming to do that. Yeah. But, but having at least, you know, some rootedness in, in the, the field, I think helps you. And, and I think we talked to each other too about, um, you know, we're we're among the three of us. We're kind of broadly familiar with certain literatures and less yeah. familiar with other things. Um, so we will periodically kind of ask people we know about about arguments and about you know uh, about fields and things like that. Yeah, um, it's it's been handy. You know, to if there's terminology that I'm just I don't encounter as a 20th century diplomatic historian that I think oh. This is more of 19th century literature. Aaron or Bill might, they might immediately know what this is as opposed to me kind of trying to decipher it. And um, and also too, like, you know, the, the pieces we've run that have had anything to do with India or South Asia, I've, I've had, you know, my fingerprints on because it's either, it's either stuff that I am just incredibly fascinated with, or like in the case of Narani Basu's mailbag about how to write a biography. I remember seeing stuff about Narani's biography uh, while I was in India, and I was thinking, like, oh, I really wish I could, you know, I knew I had a connection to this person. I'd like to know more about her. And then a friend of mine just kind of DM'd the two of us and said, like, oh, Narani, you should talk to Mark. Uh, I think I think you guys might have a lot in common. So uh, it's it's just, you know, it's nice that we have, you know, readers and supporters that you know, suggest us to, to people to pitch that people, you know, have offered to, to uh, be sounding boards or, or offer advice. Like that's, that's a nice thing. I mean, it's, it's one thing for somebody to give money to the site and support, you know, the publication of a piece. There's other ways people can support us too, by, you know, offering their advice or counsel or just things that, Hey, you should, you should talk to this person or, you know, Hey, Mm -hmm. this, this is a good magazine you should pitch for. I know these people, they, they, they're looking for interesting stuff. So how else is the reception been? I mean, clearly, and I, I say this as someone who's written for you, I definitely recommended you guys because the editorial process is smooth. Getting paid is smooth. It's a great site to have your content featured amongst because you know that the other pieces that your piece is amongst sort of represent this collage in some ways, but also a sort of seamless vision of, of the inclusion that we can have in our fields. Um, so I know as sort of a contributor, but also as a reader um, on an individual basis, but how has the reception been at large from different facets of academia and also outside of academia? Because I think that's your primary goal. Yeah, I mean, I think we have a, a challenge that some other magazines don't have. The thing that is at the core of our magazine isn't a field or a chronological time frame or a topic, it's it's kind of a, I hesitate to say a philosophy, but it, it's sort of centering labor issues and, and centering this kind of very particular mission that we have, which means it can be a challenge, frankly, to market because it's not like, you know, we can kind of put clusters of pieces together that fit really well, but, but our pieces are very different from each other, even yeah. though there are really good connections between them. Um, so as a general magazine, uh, that can make it kind of tough. So Twitter really is our best um, 
our best marketing space. And I think it, it really just helped there that, um, you know, that all three of us were, were already people in that space. Um, and that's where, where a piece can really, um, can really take off and, and get picked up in some, yeah. in some interesting spaces. Yeah, I remember a, a recent piece we had by Nishant Basat a, mm. about about Curry before Columbus. You know that. You know, I I remember messaging with Nishant afterwards, and he's like, "Oh, I've never had a piece get this kind of reception." You know, it just it, it's a cool feeling. But you know, I think I think either Aaron or Bill found that it had been uh, collected by uh, an Indian uh, magazine scroll. Scroll, uh, as, yeah. As, as like they're We're like still getting. We're yeah. still getting getting clicks from that. I was gonna say between Narani uh, mailbag and Nishant's piece, like uh, just we can see where people are reading us, and and you know of course we have you know the most most of our readers are in the United States, some in the UK, some in Canada, but India is moving moving fast up the up the ladder there. So it's uh, it's nice to see, and you know when I was I did a little bit of traveling at the beginning of this year in the UK and, and Austria. So I was handing out contingent cards and telling people to pitch us. So, you know, it's, it's, I would say this year, last year it was true, but this year alone, we've had pitches from all parts of different countries in Africa and Asia and throughout Europe. And uh, it's, it's nice to, to, to see us have a, a global reach or at least. Yeah. I mean, know, I, yeah. I think one piece that really uh, notably didn't, didn't do great numbers on Twitter and mm. did incredible numbers on Facebook. And there are lots of reasons why. Um, and it's newly relevant uh, again today. Uh, Eduardo Torres's escape from New York and from Columbia University. Yeah. Um, to be quite honest, uh, U.S. born academics had no interest in touching that. Yeah. Uh, the amount of the amount of reading it got, I mean, it just didn't, it got shared by two uh, U.S., the two U.S. born tenured faculty that I know of. And one of them was a former professor of both of ours, who was the one who encouraged us yeah. to pick up the piece in the first place. Um, but it did, it, all of a sudden, the stats on the back end of the site were unintelligible because WordPress sometimes has a hard time parsing um, the sources of international clicks. Um, and it, it's because it was doing, it was being shared all over Facebook um, among international grad students. Yeah. Um, so to see that, um, you know, that I think is really exciting. And I think like with Nishant's piece, uh, the Curry piece, it's not that, not that I didn't think the piece would do well, but sometimes you never know what piece is going to yeah. catch. Um, you know, we figured Charles's piece that, you know, the Triscuit, Twitter thread response piece would do well. And it did well enough that it got picked up by pocket and it broke the website for a day. <laughs> right. Um, or Ra Rachel but, Kirby's piece about Mr. Peanut has, yeah. About Mr. Peanut. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but some things like, like Mark's mailbag on why do historians still have to go to archives? Like it did respectable business when it first came out, but then we'll just, we, you know, we throw up old pieces every once in a while and it caught a second wind for reasons I can't, really explain several months later yeah no it was, and just yeah it was like november it, it, it had been like almost eight months since it had first debuted and and i <laughs> i threw it into a tweet someday because i was like well it's been a while since this came out let's see what anybody thinks about it and yeah. then and it just sort of took off yeah 
so it's been it's been interesting. Like Emily, uh, our web developer Emily's mom always wants to talk to her about what was in. Um, I was surprised even my sister, who was also a history major and is a librarian, um, she'll randomly sort of like text me about having read something. Like I remember her loving Bill's Nixon piece from early on, and I was sort of surprised about that. Um, it'll be interesting to just to see the piece. Like not a retweeted something from one of us, but just someone organically sharing it. Yeah. I think those are yeah. the really exciting uh, moments. Um, but the the challenge can be converting those people into uh, into repeat visitors. You know, lots of people read a thing about Triscuits. Will they come back and read anything else? Is I think the the real challenge. Yeah. I think a lot of your pieces have a staying power. They're not just, I mean, even the Star Wars pieces, which were obviously released to coincide with the movie, you wrote them so that mm -hmm. they could be read in different contexts. Like not you wrote them, you 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 collected them. Well, you wrote a piece, Aaron, for that collection, didn't you? Yeah. I did. Yeah. Um I did. Like these pieces have staying power. They can be reassigned. People watch Star Wars constantly. I mean, um, the mailbag that I was confusing with Mark's, um, which is the one about contingency, which is so great. I see that popping up all the mm -hmm. time on Twitter. And I've sent it to people because they don't understand this whole system. I mean, it's a, it's the kind of thing you can send to someone when they say, well, why can't you just walk down the street to this university and get a job there? <laughs> why have you thought about sending your resume to Harvard down the street? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. so, well, that's that's exactly what they're mm -hmm. for in some sense. Like they're meant to be, um, they're meant to be the pieces that you can, and not in a condescending way, but kind of give to someone who who wouldn't necessarily, uh, who who doesn't want to read, a, or need to read a really big long explanation of things, but but kind of just um, needs the perspective from practitioners to to understand this this weird system that we function in or don't function in as the case may be. Yeah. Um, okay, so one other use that I've seen of contingent and something you've all encouraged is in the classroom, be it for K through 12 students, maybe not K. I mean, you could try to read a contingent piece like the kindergartners, mm -hmm. but, but <laughs> for pre-university students and for university students, and I've even, I've been told that pieces are on different syllabi for graduate students as well, um, as I'm sure you've been told. So how are people using contingent in the classroom and how do you think generally about the future of education and pedagogy? I'm pulling up our teacher survey now. I mean, I can say right now, I actually have a high school intern at the museum with me. And um, so it's me and the, the director of collections who are collaborating with this with this young woman and she's putting together an exhibit case. And I actually gave her Aaron's comic as like a primer on, on exhibit design. And uh, Jody, my colleague, hadn't seen it and I showed it to her and I was like, I'm sure there's something like better, like real museum study stuff you can give her. And she read it through and she's like, Nope, that pretty much uh, pretty much covers all the yeah. important stuff. So that piece, um, that piece is actually, uh, it's linked, I think, uh, in some Smithsonian lesson plans. Yeah. It's it's included, I think, in the New York City Grade Five Public School awesome. curriculum like materials. Uh, all of them have to be an expurgated version because this, I think, the <laughs> Smithsonian link says note contains the word "ass." Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Just one. <laughs> uh, just one. So that uh, 
that's one one kind of cool thing like to be able to use that myself has been really yeah uh, has been nice um let's see i'm looking i'm actually looking right now at our educator survey um so one person said that they had used it for students looking for topics for research papers. Like they looked around the site to, to see what was interesting as a way to kind of think outside of the box of what history can be. So to see what other people have been thinking about. Um, someone's used the trouble with Triscuits as a mini lesson in asking historical questions. Um, quite a few people I think have used the mailbag I wrote, this, this someone had written right here, um, the what is revisionist history uh, thing that I wrote on on their syllabi. And it was weird. Someone messaged me that they were putting it on their syllabus alongside such and such other book in their methods class. And I was like, I read that book in my <laughs> methods class in college. Um, and then, um, yeah, and this person here had, had actually used Aaron's comic to help them, to help their students um, curate an exhibit in their class. That's so cool. I mean, that must be so, yeah, that must be super fulfilling. So how about how, I mean, do you, hmm, do you at all commission piece, not commission, sorry, ugh, my brain just broke. Um, <laughs> um, do you, is there an approach to how you incorporate pedagogy onto the site? Like actual pieces about pedagogy? Because I've seen quite a few how I do histories about this. I wouldn't have even thought of them that way. We were sort of thinking about we have some plans to do some more explicit pedagogically based stuff. Right. Um, but I never really thought that I guess we we are doing some of that already. Well, even museum. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, the museum stuff. I mean, I think we'd really like to move in in that direction. And the nice thing about the magazine is essentially the only thing that limits us is the money that we get from other people to pay writers, you know, we, we could put out more. Yeah. Uh, if there's more, I mean, that sounds very mercenary, but that was kind of the, the gamble that people said we'd be willing to pay for this. And we said, okay, here's the opportunity. <laughs> right. um, and so like, if people decide they don't want to pay anymore for the magazine, like then we won't have the magazine anymore. And, and, it'll be sad, but also like it's a lot of time and, and work. Um, so, so being able to expand to do more stuff on pedagogy and to do more guest mailbags and things like that. Um, the, the ideas for the magazine are really limitless. Um, it's just, do we have the, do we have the funding? Yeah. I, I remember, you know, when, when lockdown started and, and the pandemic really, hit in March, you know, we, I think we were publishing more per week. We were usually publishing two things a week, even if, even if one was kind of a short piece, because, you know, people were home, people, you know, were looking for something to read or something to do. Uh, and also, you know, people needed an outlet, you know, like we would get, someone would do a thread on Twitter or, you know, would kind of ask an interesting question. And, and that kind of thought like that, that would be a great piece. And, you know, like, like what we were saying, if we can pay for it, we'll, We'll do it, but you know we we would love, you know we get a lot of pitches even when we're not open for pitches, and you know it, it's you know there's stuff that we can kind of, well you know we'll just put that off to the side. We'd love to be able to do it, but it, until we can guarantee a spot on the schedule, and we know that we can pay that person. Like that's that just has to wait. But um, I mean, we opened up for pitches in February mm -hmm. for 
three weeks, four weeks, and basically built a full slate through November. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of where we where we are because like go figure people like to pitch a magazine where they get paid for it and we don't want to be in the in the situation where like i I feel bad sort of saying like we don't have a spot to publish this till october Mm -hmm. um and knowing sometimes that 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 might mean that the person decides they're going to you know take the piece somewhere else um but i i think we have a couple of pieces coming down the line um i'm just finishing editing a, a piece actually on tenure track hiring and the challenges of negotiation for scholars of color and women. Um, we have a piece on the AP on, on sort of the AP system more broadly, but the kind of debacle that happened this year yeah. um, coming up as well. So those are the kinds of pieces we like to be able to take from Twitter threads and, and from, we, we sort of are very resistant to the hot take of the, this is this is how Trump is like Nixon or Jackson yeah. or whoever. Um, but when when somebody has an experience or um, has a really creative framing of something that's about sort of the work of history, those are the things we like to be able to pull in. And of course, people are constantly tagging us in and saying, yeah. "Contingent, you should publish this." Um, <laughs> you know, which I love and appreciate, but also. Like we would love to publish all of those things. We just won't publish things if we can't pay people. Yeah. So. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up sort of about sort of you're not going to publish sort of the hot take on how is Trump like Nixon or whatever, um, because something you guys also do really well is coverage of, of recent events. Um, and when I say events, I mean sort of in the historical sphere the sphere of sort of professional mm-hmm. history and the implications it has and how that mirrors what's going on in greater society. So you ran two excellent pieces on the sheer conference and that one particular panel. And I, I thought it was so timely and I wasn't surprised to see that you had run it. I, as a non, as an outsider to sheer had seen all the tweets and had seen the hashtag going around. And, and I, appreciated having this window into this other world, um, mostly because the exact same thing was happening um, at the American Association of Religion, the AAR's listservs, but also unbeknownst to many people, it was happening on another listserv that I have access to. And was it on H, was it on H France? Was it that one? No, it wasn't that one. Um, That one, (laughs) this one, uh, uh, I will tell you after recording which one it was. Okay. <laughs> well, you say you say as an outsider to Sheer, Sheer is like one of the primary conferences yeah. in my field, yeah. and it's a field that it's a conference that I often felt like an outsider at, which was part of why I was interested. And and I think Bill had seen the tweet thread gro- going around, um, and we sort of commissioned. Um, based on on the tweet thread Um, and we're able to like that's the thing there were tons of think pieces published on that and it was in the New York Times and all this kind of stuff and and I knew that we we could publish the piece we published Um, and that we hopefully that the scholar who wanted to say those things could feel like ours was a good site to have that viewpoint expressed and trust that the editorial process would would honor what he wanted to say. Mark, do you have anything to add? Oh, I, 
the only thing I would add is, you know, I remember kind of seeing this go on in, in real time because, you know, being from being at the University of Connecticut, you know, the, the big programs in, in the history department are foreign relations history and early America. So I, even though I, I, I don't do, don't study this time period in place, most of, a lot of my friends and colleagues, you know, they're, that I know what they're doing in July. They're getting ready to go to Shear. They're getting ready to either present there or, uh, you know, at least the few years I was in Connecticut, it was either, you know, in New Haven or it was not too far away. So it's, it's a big deal. So it's, it's one of those fields where I'm not connected to it uh, closely, but I know enough people. I know that it's a, it's a big deal for, for this field. And I know, so seeing stuff both on Twitter and on Facebook, you could kind of jump back and forth and see what was going on. And it was just, it was, it was almost surreal. And then to see all these kind of uh, cause and effect situations where it's just like, Oh man, this is, this is uh you know, what, what do we do? Like there's so many things going on that, that we, we could be speaking to this. And uh, that's just one of those, those instances where we, we think fast and we reach out and, and, you know, it, it comes together. It's, you know, something happens and two weeks later, we've got, or a week later, we've got a, a piece up and it's been uh, heartening to see the people sharing it. And it, it you know, it's kind of like Eduardo's op-ed and that, you know, it's, it's been the places where it's been shared and the conversations that it's, the larger conversations that it's uh, um, generated have just been, again, that's, that's kind of what a, what a, what a good publication can do. Yeah. And I, well, and I think the, the, a similar one earlier in the summer, um, the round table that we did yeah. on on being contingent yes. during COVID in some ways came out of I got asked I, I was in the I was in the one in the Chronicle back in March um, the one that I could tell nobody read before commenting on it because they were like there's not even any non tenured people in here and I was like there were like five of us <laughs> um, and some like ed tech randos or whatever you know but but we had that and then we thought well let's do you know, let's do this uh, for contingent scholars. And I think that, that that panel spoke to, or the way we constructed it, um, kind of reflects something else that we try really hard to do. Um, I mean, and I think I'm conscious of it in particular ways um, because I know about sort of gender representation in fields, mm -hmm. but we work very hard um, on the, on the, balance of contributors that we have. And so for that was one where I was sort of like, we don't, to be representative of what is happening right now, we don't have one person talking about being a parent during this. And I think three or four of them talk about that because it was, it's three or four out of seven worth of the stuff that people are worrying about. Yeah. Um, you know, so we could, um, and we, you know, we had another another scholar in there talking about the challenges of being an international grad student and having to make the choice to to return to Mexico or to stay here. And now, you know, um, we were trying to highlight those things early on. Um, I think it was interesting. Sometime in oh, I went to Agway that week, so it was probably sometime in May when like tenured faculty finally got it, like realized that they were going to get treated like adjuncts now too. And Twitter was just a bonfire for a full weekend. I mean, people just lost their shit. Sorry, I don't know if you can swear on this. Um, it, it was just like this moment of absolute 
panic. Uh, you know, and my DMs were just sort of full of adjuncts being like, welcome to our world. Um, but someone replied to something I said uh, and was sort of like, wow, I didn't expect Contingent to become the, the like leading journal of the field so quickly <laughs> that like we would now be the only thing. <laughs> um, because everyone's contingency felt so much closer to a bunch of people all mm -hmm. of a sudden. Um, and I think that that's why it's sort of been weird to ask for donations in the middle of a pandemic because there's a million other things. But like, it was always a good feeling to be able to pay contingent people because like we knew how, I know how much adjuncts make. Yeah. If anything, I have perhaps the most complete database of that from last year. Like paying someone for a short $250 is, is a lot of money. And there are a lot of contingent people right now. I mean, the, there will just be no job market this year. There, whatever was there is just yeah. gone. Yeah. Um, and like we're a, a small way so that the scholarship and the scholars aren't gone too. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of discussion um, about the fact that this generation of scholars might not have venues to produce their work because they might be working other jobs where they can't necessarily pour all this time and energy into waiting for a peer review publication and getting bad comments back because we've all had that reviewer and you know or not yeah. being able you know the reviewer saying why didn't you read this new book well exactly. I don't have access to that exactly whereas I think I, I, I admire the fact that you all have a very even distribution um, different professions are being highlighted, which I think is also something that people take some heart in. I mean, of course, museum jobs have been massively hit by the pandemic as well. Yeah. But I think yeah. it is also helping people imagine a life beyond the professor, the tenure track sort of, you know, um, shoot. Um, anyway, let's talk a little bit more about the future then. I mean, what do you... How do you want Contingent to develop? And is there anything on the site in the near and far future that you're excited about and that you can tease for us? Um, we mentioned the yes. Radical Hope Roundtable, which I think is coming up later so in the month. Yeah. We kind of, we got a bunch, I mean, it's also weird, like sometimes we'll go to post something and like some catastrophic world event has just happened. <laughs> so we kind of, we kind of got a little backed up you know um but so that'll be coming out cripes i haven't even looked at what's coming down the road um pull up our our publication schedule like finding stuff like air tables be able to manage pitches and stuff like this we have a, a very good system when we get a bunch of pitches in we each kind of blind review them and the system is want want what is it like really want, really want yeah. sort of like yeah. sort of like and don't want yeah. <laughs> um, you know and then we uh and then we when we're all done we sort of look at uh look at that um what's coming up i don't even remember what some of these about i mean oh we have some we have some museum stuff oh aaron cole is doing another comic Ooh. for us it'll come out later in the year yeah i'm yeah um, i'm really excited about that one yeah, we have these sort of like very quick, uh, like two or three word descriptions of what the piece is. And I'm like, I don't remember what any of these are. Um, that already came out. Mark has a field trip coming, or a mailbag. Mark has, 
Mark had yeah. several mailboxes yeah, on the list. I, yeah, I'm, I've, I've got to finish a, a mailbag about, we we talked about doing this kind of mini series within the mailbags about history cliches. And we, we asked people to, to submit, you know, some of their, their favorite slash least favorite history cliches. So I, I, that's what I need to finish up. There was, you know, that was the thing. With, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Mine was the, the one on, don't we have to judge people by the standards yeah. of their time? So that yeah. was my cliche. That, that was something too. I, 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 I was really glad when Aaron wrote that because I, that takes me back to a lot of first year <laughs> seminars where you know, we'd be talking about eugenics and Jim Crow and mm-hmm. all these things. And, and it seemed like every class that that idea came up of just like, you know, but, you know, but nobody really knew how bad this was or no. And it's just like, and just to sort of, you know, again, when you're in the room and you're kind of new to this, you tend to be quiet. You, you don't know if, if you're the only one thinking this. And, and so some of these mailbags have just been the questions that have been on people's lips, especially people that are not familiar with academia or don't have a long history with it that you want to ask, but honestly, there's no signal that it's okay to. So oftentimes when I, the people, the people answering it loudly are also bad and giving the wrong answer. That's why, I mean, when I, I just like with field trips, I often, I find myself more encouraging people to, to pitch ideas for mailbags because, you know, that, that, the one that I did about why historians still go to, you know, physical places, why they still have to look at sources. It's just, that was like a constant question that I was personally getting from family and friends. Like, well, I thought, isn't, you know, hasn't Google digitized those books or, yeah. you know, isn't like, isn't that, don't, don't presidential library. And so it's one of those things that every historian has at least one, you know, several questions that they get constantly. And, and what's the one thing that you can, you're an expert at answering. So, you know, that's, that's, my encouragement to people who listen to this is pitch us, you know, these, these ideas, you know, on mailbags and mini essays, you know, if you've got, you know, something that you don't know where it will fit in, it's not long enough for an article pitch us. If, if there's a question you keep getting uh, and, and you just want to answer it once and for all <laughs> pitch us about that. Or if you hear that question and you don't have a great answer for yeah. it. Yeah. You know, that's what, like, the mailbag is the page that has a submission form at the top for you to send stuff in. Um, So we would love to get those requests from people. I think one of the things, uh, we're sort of doing a bit of a low-key fundraiser at the time, but one of the things we'd like to, you know, if we could just take in a hundred more dollars a month, we would like to have a commissioned mailbag every month. And so we do have one... um, I won't say who it's coming from, but there'll be a mailbag on historical fiction later in, uh, in the fall. Um, so, so I think we've got some cool stuff coming up there. I have an idea for a end of the year series that I want to do, but we haven't had like an editorial meeting to pitch it at. Yeah. That's, uh, I've been, I've been meaning to message you about, you know, what do we want to sit down and talk about what December 2020 looks like? Yeah, because I think it's been, you know, uh, we've all had, so like Bill has just gotten a new job and had to sort of move, not halfway across the country, but a good way across the country. So kind of at the moment, Mark and I are handling a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's kind of what happens that we'll have, each of us will have something 
that kind of occupies us for for a period of time and the other two will kind of um take the lead yeah for a while but um but we have to kind of sit down and think about uh about where we go going forward the summer has been kind of an interesting time and we didn't plan we planned for this content for the summer i don't think we knew that it would be as relevant as it was some of this really hard stuff about about what it what it means to to teach history and and how do we actually do it um i think has become relevant in ways we were not expecting um i mean i think one of our dreams would be uh, in a sense we are kind of given our other jobs and personal obligations in some ways a little bit close to a, about what we can manage editorially i think what we'd love is to be in a position where we had to hire on somebody else yeah uh as an editor and we get sort of a month we we sort of hemmed and hawed about it, but realized like we would have to pay ourselves a monthly stipend. And probably I think it works out to like three fifteen an hour or something <laughs> at this point. Um, but I think we'd love to be in the position where we had enough, um, we had enough financial stability to, to put out just a, just a skinch more content. I don't think people actually want to read. I don't think people want to read a piece a day from us. And I think things right. would get lost. Yeah, no, I, I, I would like if we could permanently do two pieces a week, whether it's, you know, you know, two shorts or, you know, uh, a review and, and some kind of smaller piece. But I, I like where we where we especially like during the springtime where we were publishing about eight or nine pieces a month um, because there was just there was we could we could afford to do it. There was a lot of good ideas. Um I, I know for me, I'd like to, there's like pitches we've gotten for projects that, that would involve yep. some, you know, additional support. It would involve either, you know, some kind of software or, I mean, I, I like I was saying earlier, you know, our, our logo was designed by a digital media and design student. And I, I got to teach in that department for a couple of years. So I got to meet all sorts of, you know, uh, interesting and innovative animators and filmmakers and we'd love to be able to commission you know a short film or have a historian write a script or produce a piece of oh, animation yeah. yeah i mean like we'd love to be able to get into different me like that there's a piece that aaron edited this spring that involved um that involved uh audio that involved uh oh yeah, yeah. and that was just something that's just like Here's a piece, you know, there's text here, but then you could also listen. It's one thing to describe, you know, singing and music. It's another thing to actually hear it. And, you know. Yeah, wait, so my yeah. my roommate, who also sends all of our newsletters and does all that kind of stuff, <laughs> right. um, was in a position where as a professional musician, you know, her career all of a sudden was just gone. Mm -hmm. um, but the one thing and the one thing she could do was go down the street to the church and and record in that empty church safely. Um, and I think that was really fun. And, and Mark's been, has been pushing for, for some of this more innovative stuff from the start. And I actually did, Mark, just get introduced to a new postdoc in the department at UConn oh. through somebody who, somebody who, who knows contingent and supports us, but also knows that I live in Connecticut, obviously. Um, <laughs> so I, all of a sudden I know I, I will meet this new person. Um, but I think, you know, one of the challenges we, we had ideas, we had, does it like our blue sky imagination period, yeah. as, as Mark put it, like it's tough because all of a sudden it's like, well, everything, every grant has to be about COVID. And 
and this is obviously I deal with this at the museum, like us continuing to exist is about COVID. Like nothing is not about that right now. But we had thoughts of sort of how can we pair up young illustrators yeah. with historians? Because in some ways it's like people yell at historians, why don't they use different forms? And it's like, we also work our whole lives to be able to just do one form of communication effectively. Like should a historian have to also then learn how to become a comics illustrator and learn how to make documentaries? Or are there ways to just bring people together? And I think the Star Wars thing was a really great yeah. version of that. You know, that was just Audrey got those pieces and she and she illustrated from them. And all of those authors got to see, you know, when their when their piece went up, they got to see an illustration. Um and and to be able to do to to fund those kinds of collaborations, I think would be amazing. Okay, so I, I mean, I'm a massive fan, as you both know, um, and I want to congratulate you on your success and, of course, wish you future success. So thank you for sitting down and talking to me. It's been really, it's, this has been a lot of fun. Well, you didn't say what most people said at our one year anniversary. The most common comment that I got oh, from yeah. was, was, wow, I, I actually didn't think it would work. <laughs> oh my God, really? <laughs> and I, You're kidding me. It meant in a very positive way. And I was like, me either. <laughs> like, I, don't know what to, I don't know what to tell you. But yeah, like, but I think that that expressed kind of, I took it in a really nice way because <laughs> they, they knew what a lift it was going to be. And that, that asking people for money for this, you know, was a hard thing. And yeah. I'm like, I also was surprised that this is just the thing that we do now. Oh, it's funny. I had no doubt in my mind because I oh. followed you on Twitter for a while. And I was like, oh, if, if Aaron's behind it as this person who I, you know, admire from a distance, it was like, yeah, it's it's going to be great. Like, this makes sense. I remember when the announcement came out, I'm like, okay, I'm going to retweet as much as I can. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when I'm in a position to donate, I will. But also this is going to be a thing. Um, and it's going to be fantastic. And I mean, as soon as your first set of articles go went up, I was like, yeah, this is this is it. Well, that is really lovely to hear and a bomb on on the kind of behind the scenes panic and anxiety. Um, it, and that's that it only works because people people like it and they share it um, and they share pieces like yeah. watching your piece get shared and read like it's it's so exciting for us. Like it makes me so happy, like just to, like to see people's stuff get loved and read. Thank you for listening. And again, a big thank you to Aaron and to Mark. You can follow Contingent at Contingent underscore Mag on Twitter. Mark Reyes is at Mark underscore A underscore Reyes 84. And Aaron Bartram is at Aaron underscore Bartram. Bill Black is William R. Black. You can follow me at NAMonsword26. And you can follow The Maiden at The Maiden on Twitter. The production team includes Micah Hughes, who you can follow at Micah A. Hughes, and Ahmed Tekeliolu. Most importantly, um, I want to thank the audio editor who does our post-production, Sophie Potts. A big thank you to the Luz Foundation. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Be sure to subscribe or to follow the Maidan on social media for upcoming episodes and more in the Maidan selection of podcasts.